Well, good evening, Rua Church. I want to invite you guys to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. And we will be uh, reading starting in verse 28 of Luke chapter 9. And once you have found that text in your copy of God's Word, I would invite you to stand and join me for the reading of it. So Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out from the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one those days anything of what they had seen. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can be seated. As we are uh, continuing now our exposition of Luke's gospel, we come now to uh, what's what's typically uh, labeled in Bibles as the the transfiguration, uh, the moment when the disciples ascend the mountain with Jesus, really just three of the disciples, and uh, the veil of Jesus' glory is peeled back for a moment, uh, and uh, the the unfolding of that and the the significance of that event is much of what we're going to discuss Uh, tonight. If we were to try to put it under a single heading, uh, we would say this is a dazzling experience, a dazzling experience, uh, which Peter, James, and John get to experience uh, with their Lord on the mountaintop. Now, it's it's probably worth uh, reflecting on the significance of this event uh, in light of uh, all that has transpired thus far in Luke's gospel. Uh, Remember, we're working verse by verse through it. One of the benefits of that is that we are not trying to take this out of its context, but we're trying to read Uh, within its context, what is going on. And I would just like to quickly draw your attention to verse 22 of chapter 9, uh, where we read that Jesus tells them it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things. He was to face rejection from the elders and from the chief priests and from the scribes, and he was to die and on the third day to be resurrected. Now, this is his teaching about himself, about his Messiahship, and it should not surprise us that the transfiguration takes place shortly after this revelation. In fact, I think Luke puts these events together and that they happened in this way for the encouragement and the edification of the disciples. This uh, significant revelation about who God is, is, it comes on the heels of a a really hard truth that the disciples have to hear, that their Lord, their Christ, uh, must suffer, uh, must die, and must must face rejection from all of their theological leaders. And so it is, it is in that moment of, let's say, weakness or that hard truth that they hear that they receive really this moment of encouragement and strengthening uh, in the experience on the mountaintop. Uh, so with that being said, reading within the context and understanding the, the purpose that it serves, um, I'd like to just look at a couple of different things in this text. So we won't be able to cover uh, and plumb the depths of every part of this passage and all of the, the richness of it, um, but we can hit uh, most of the high notes. 
And I would like to first maybe ask the question, what is the significance of this transfiguration? What is the, what is the thing being revealed to us when his glory is pulled back and the disciples see and understand it? So I'd like to turn your attention uh, to verse 29, uh, where we see that it was while he was praying that the appearance of his face changes or is altered. Um, his face uh, changes and shifts, and it says that his clothing, clothing becomes dazzling white. It becomes uh, as bright as lightning, as some translations will say it. He is uh, revealing his glory. Now, this uh, experience might draw to mind uh, something that if you're familiar with uh, the Old Testament and the prophet Moses, who gets mentioned also in this passage, there's this moment where Moses is communing with God, and he's communing so closely with God that after he comes down from the mountain, no one can look at his face because his face is shining. His face is shining, reflecting the glory of God whom he's conversing with in the mountain. And the text in that passage in Exodus 34 tells us clearly that it's not Moses' glory that's shining on his face. It's actually the reflection of the glory of God shining on the prophet Moses, and he has to actually veil it. So that's the Moses story. And this text will draw that image to mind because we see that it says the appearance of his face changes. And out of this appearance, you have a dazzling revelation of glory and, and blinding white light coming forth. But the text here is also clear. It's, it's like the Moses glory, but it's different. Moses' glory is a reflection, clearly a reflection of the glory of God. And in this text, it seems as though it is the glory of Jesus himself that is shining forth. In fact, the text never says that it's the glory from conversing with God that shines through because the cloud actually only comes in later in the text. It's actually the glory that's being derived from the face of Jesus that comes forth. It's the, the appearance of his face that changes. And the light that comes forth is, is coming forth from, from his own countenance. His clothing changes, and it's all a dazzling, blinding, bright light. And so the, the significance of this is, is twofold. One, it draws to mind, let's say, the correlation between Jesus and Moses. And the text will flush out all of the significance of those things. But even more than that, I think the text is driving home something to us, that this is not the glory of someone else that is reflecting onto Jesus. And, and he is certainly a great prophet, as the text will tell us. But this is actually the glory of Jesus himself shining forth in his face. It is, it is his own glory. It is his own face altering and his own face shining forth with blinding light. And this happens in the presence of Jesus and the two with him, the two men standing there are Moses and Elijah. And the, the text tells us that uh, in verse 30 that the two men who are talking with him, they're discussing, look at verse 31, uh, his exodus. They're discussing and they're talking to him and they speak of his departure or some translations will say his death. Uh, if you look at a footnote or uh, possibly an alternate translation, uh, this is speaking about his exodus. I think the language in the text is fairly uh, narrow or fairly specific because if, you, if you're reflecting on asking the question, well, when they're talking about his departure, his, his death, what is, what is it that they're really talking about? Are they discussing uh, just merely the fact that he's gonna die? Or are they possibly referring to the same thing we, we read about in verse 22? Jesus telling his disciples about the rejection that he would face, the death that he would experience, and then the resurrection he would enjoy, and possibly, you know, knowing the, how the story concludes, the ascension that he goes to at the right hand of the Father. These things probably are all encompassing together what is being discussed by Moses and Elijah. And so the term really would be fitting. It's, it's his whole departure. It's not just his death, but it's actually the whole experience, the death the resurrection and the ascension uh, by which he, he leads free his disciples and a whole host of other people into new life. 
And the language of the Exodus, I think, is specific because uh, Moses does the same thing in his Exodus with the Israelites. He actually has to go through necessary steps, squaring off against Pharaoh, doing battle with their gods, in order to lead the Israelites free from slavery into the Promised Land. This is the work of Moses, and we describe that text of the Old Testament as the Exodus narrative, right? The, the narrative of the Israelites being led out of captivity into new life. And here the text says, Moses and Elijah are talking with Jesus. And what are they discussing? They're talking about his exodus, the exodus that Jesus is going to undergo. Uh, and it says the one which he is about to accomplish in Jerusalem. The text is making reference, the thing he's about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Uh, that's probably the same reference that they had in verse 22 about facing the chief priests and the scribes and the, the Pharisees who are in Jerusalem. And that's where he's got to go to face them. So this is the exodus that Jesus is going to lead forth. And it seems that they're discussing this, Moses and Elijah and Jesus. And it's at this moment that the text kind of peeks back and tells us, how is it that we know that any of this is happening, right? We were told the disciples went up onto the cloud or up onto the mountain with Jesus. But we're not told at this point where the disciples are in the framework, right? Uh, Moses and Elijah and Jesus are talking. We're told the face of Jesus has changed. But we're not told where the disciples are. Well, verse 32 kind of takes a step back and tells us where are Peter, James, and John during these events. Verse 32 says, now Peter and those who were with him, which is James and John, uh, they were heavy with sleep. <laughs> they were fast asleep. And uh, this is not uh, uh, unusual for the disciples. Usually when Jesus is praying, the disciples are either engaging in prayer with him or struggling to stay awake. <laughs> this is uh, something that kind of continues as a motif in the Gospels. And so here it says they were heavy with sleep, but the text is also clear. This is not something they had in a dream or in a vision, actually, it actually clarifies, it says, but when they became fully awake is when they see the glory. This is when they see all these things unfolding. So we're not, Luke is clear in the text. This is not a vision that the disciples have had. This is not a dream that they had together collectively. They were asleep, heavily asleep. They were awake. And after that period of grogginess had passed away, it's when they become fully awake that they observe these events, the glory of Jesus and the two men who are standing with him. And so verse 32 really is telling us chronologically what happened right before these events un are unfolding, how the disciples come to know that Jesus' face changed in appearance and how they observe Moses and Elijah and Jesus talking together. So uh, we can ask then the question, well, why is Jesus talking with Moses and Elijah? Uh, why is he not, for example, talking with uh, one of the other prophets? Why isn't he talking with Aaron, who is Moses' right hand? Why is he not speaking with Joshua, the leader who succeeds right after Moses? Why is he not talking to David? What's, what's the significance of Moses and Elijah and not, you know, Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel? Why are, why are these two mentioned? Well, uh, there's a whole host of theories on this, but I think one of the best ways to understand this in Jesus' own words in Luke uh, 24, when he's talking about himself, he says, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he talks about all the scripture concerning himself. Now, Moses is the prophet of Israel, but he's the prophet of Israel who delivers the law to the people. He delivers the Sinaitic covenant, the covenant that tells the people what they must obey and how they must be if God is to dwell in their midst. And then Elijah, by contrast, is the representative or the head of a different group or different uh, era of Jewish history. Namely, he's the first of the many prophets, Elijah and then Elisha and then Isaiah and Hosea and Daniel all come after Elijah. But the role of the prophets is not to establish new covenants with the people of Israel. The role of the prophets, Elijah being the first, is to actually call Israel back to faithfulness with the covenant that has been inaugurated. So Moses is representing, let's say, the giving of the law. 
and this testifying as a witness to Jesus' identity. And then Elijah is standing, let's say, as an archetype or a head representative of the prophets who come after him. And he is the one who's primarily responsible for calling Israel back to faithfulness. And now Elijah stands testifying to Jesus and uh, participating in the revelation of Jesus' glory here on the mountaintop. And both Moses and Elijah are then here with Jesus almost as witnesses or, or uh, testaments to uh, that he, Jesus, is the completion of what Elijah predicted and what Moses predicted, that he's really the culmination of these things. This is one of the significant uh, points that we can drive from the text. And the text is clear to us uh, later on in the text that Moses, Elijah, and Jesus aren't all on the same playing field. In fact, the text tells us that the cloud makes it clear that Jesus is different from Moses and Elijah. Jesus is not like them. He's, he's in a caliber like them, but he's actually in a caliber beyond what they are. Moses was a great man, a prophet of God, and the mediator of a covenant. Elijah was a great man, a prophet of God, who actually doesn't die. He goes straight into glory. Jesus is greater than both of those individuals. That's what the text is making clear. But nevertheless, we can uh, turn and ask the question, okay, why is it? Why is it that the transfiguration happens now? What's the significance of it? I, I would submit to you that the reason the transfiguration happens at this point in the text, and the reason the text tells us it's Peter, James, and John that go up to the transfiguration mountain, not all the disciples, uh, would be primarily to encourage or to strengthen the disciples for the hardship that is to come. In Luke's gospel, uh, Luke chapter 9 is really the, the culmination or the, the halfway point. At the end of chapter 9, verse 51, you have kind of the halfway point where the, where the gospel pivots and it goes away from Jesus' Galilean ministry and into his kind of final descent into Jerusalem where he's ultimately going to face rejection, suffer, and die. And right before that happens, right before that transition point happens, we're told of the prediction of what he's to be like, verse 22. He's to be a, a prophet that's going to be rejected. And we're told about his glory in the transfiguration, that he's a prophet that's going to be rejected. But don't worry, Peter, James, and John, you get a special taste, a special glimpse, that just because he's rejected doesn't mean he's not the Christ. Just because he's going to be killed doesn't mean he's not the Christ. Look at the glory that we reveal to you on the mountaintop. Why Peter, James, and John and not all the 12? Well, Peter, James, and John are actually, uh, in many instances, the, the leaders or the forerunners of the rest of the disciples. Peter, who takes kind of the, the seat of eminence among the apostles. Uh, James, who is to be a, a mighty witness for God up until his martyrdom in the early church. And John, who's to be one of the longest lasting apostles who writes into old age, encouraging the church. These three men are the, the uh, inner circle of the apostles. And so they get special encouragement from Christ by being with him on the mountain when his glory is shown to them. We could ask the same question about why does Moses only get to see the glory of God in the Old Testament? Uh, and not Aaron and the other priests who are going to mediate. Well, God seemed it fit to only reveal himself to Moses in that special kind of way so that Moses would be encouraged as the leader of the people to lead them faithfully in the wilderness. And, and it's much the same here in the text. The transfiguration is an encouragement to the disciples, to mainly these three, who are going to no doubt see all of the rejection that Jesus faces, face all of the hardship and attacks that the, the religious leaders are going to throw his way, and so it's, it's likely an encouragement to them, almost a, a moment of experience, a dazzling moment to say, hold on, stay true. I am who I say I am and, and hold on to this moment as a memory piece or a, a cornerstone in your mind uh, so that you actually hold steadfast to the end. So this is, is likely why, why the transfiguration is here in Luke's gospel. But now we can, let's say, pivot and we can ask the question, okay, 
if this experience is so significant, if this experience is serving as an encouragement, um, why is it uh, that after Peter recognizes the experience and he sees uh, Moses and Elijah and Jesus here together, why is it that when Peter speaks, uh, the text is clear at the end of verse 33 that Peter did not know what he was saying? The text says uh, that Peter observed what's happening. He says, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And the text then parenthetically jumps out and says, but Peter doesn't really know what he's talking about. Well, what is, what is, the, what is erroneous about Peter's statement? Well, I think uh, one of the things that we need to pay attention to is the very first part of verse 33 to understand what's wrong with what Peter says. Uh, there's certainly, let's say, uh, an error of Peter in maybe insinuating that Jesus, Moses, and Elijah are all in the same playing field by saying, let's make three tents, kind of like a, an equal playing field that they're all in the same plane. That could be what's wrong. But I think more emphatically, the text is telling us, verse 33, that it's as the men were parting from him, as Moses and Elijah are departing from Jesus, is when Peter makes the statement, hey, let's set up tents, let's, let's stay for a while, let's set up shop, let's, let's keep the experience going. This is an amazing experience that Peter is partaking in and witnessing. And now he's asking for almost an extension. And, and it's towards the end, while the men are about to depart, that Peter jumps in and says, hey, hey, let's not be done yet. Uh, we'd like to keep this mountaintop experience going. This is, this is great. This is a joy. Uh, let's keep it going this way. But the text then tells us this is Peter not knowing what he's saying. And we can certainly sympathize with, with Peter in this experience, right? Uh, have you ever had a time where you're, you're reading God's word or uh, you're finding great joy and delight in the word of God uh, and you just don't want to leave that space? You don't want to leave that experience and you don't want to go out into your life and out to face the world and out to your job. And uh, Peter wants to prolong this experience, this experience of encouragement, this experience of joy. He wants to keep the experience going. And the text is clear that that's actually an erroneous uh, statement from Peter, that he's not really understanding the significance of all that he has just said. And then the text tells us something interesting that happens. The text tells us that as Peter says that, has just said this, verse 34, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid. And what does a cloud say? The cloud says, uh, a voice that comes out of it says, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. Now that is the cloud's response, if you like, to what Peter has just said. Peter says, Let's keep the experience going. And the cloud says, you don't need to keep the experience going. This is my son. Listen to what he has to say. That's a pretty significant kind of response. Uh, it's almost as if uh, the voice from the cloud is saying, you don't need to keep the experience going. If you pay attention to what Jesus says, this will be sufficient for you. This will be a sufficient kind of encouragement. This will be a sufficient kind of teaching for the hardship and suffering you're about to face. Peter is under the uh, presumption or the idea that in order for him to be encouraged about the identity of Jesus, in order for him to be strengthened in his faith, the experience that he has on this mountaintop needs to be something that can kind of prolong and go on for a period of time. And we can't necessarily judge him for that, right? We could sympathize with that kind of thing. But the voice from the cloud says, it's actually not the experience that will hold you fast. It's listening to the teaching of Jesus that's gonna hold you fast. The experience is not something that you need to prolong. Uh, as, as one commentator says, uh, it's really just a temporary provision from God for the disciples' encouragement, but it's not meant to last. It's not meant to be a permanent encouragement. Well, uh, maybe another way of understanding this would be by taking this into, let's say, a more modern kind of context. 
imagine uh, two people are going to get married. They're uh, excited for their wedding day. There's going to be this momentous occasion of joy and celebration and, uh, and much food and uh, much dancing and, and, and much rejoicing over, over that union. And suppose you come to the close of the wedding ceremony. Much delight has been shared. And the groom and the bride say, no, 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 we don't want to go. We don't want to leave. We don't want to go off into our marriage. We want to keep the celebration going. In fact, we want to keep it going basically as long as we can. Well, at some point, of necessity, the ceremony needs to end, the celebration needs to stop, so that their life together of faithful union can actually go on as it has a normal means of going on. They, they can't rely on the experience to carry them through the rest of their marriage. They have to rely on the covenant that they make and the teaching of God's word, but they, they can't rely on this experience as a permanent fixture, a mountaintop experience that they can ride out for the rest of their days. In fact, uh, if they wanted to do that, if they, if they were relying on the experience to carry them through, they would be sorely disappointed, maybe not in the first week or the first month, but certainly within the first 10 years, the high of that wedding celebration is going to fade, the regular humdrum of life is going to kick up, and if the experience goes and that's all they were hanging on to, well, this wedding is doomed to fail. This covenant is, is doomed to not work out. Well, what could keep them fast? Maybe listening to the vows that they made together, the encouragement that the, the pastor or the minister would encourage them to pay attention to the vows that you make. He would exhort them to love one another faithfully as, as Christ has loved the church. And he would say that this is something that you need to do. And he actually, in those vows, there's no mention of the emotional experience, the, the enjoyment of love, although that's all present in the wedding ceremony. But of necessity, the experience has to come to a close in order for the relationship to actually thrive and succeed. Well, it is just like that in the relationship of a disciple with Jesus. Sometimes we have these moments of great joy, great delight, great experience with Jesus. And if all we're looking for is moment-to-moment experience-type enjoyment of him, we will find ourselves sorely lacking in the regular humdrum life where we go to work and we interact with people and we struggle with sin. And all of that, while we're looking for the next experience, that's going to leave us wanting and probably leave us exposed to much discouragement and much temptation. Peter doesn't know the significance of relying on the experience too much. He doesn't know what's problematic about banking on this experience as a means of sustenance. And here the text says, after Peter makes the statement that the voice says, listen to Jesus. You don't need the experience. You don't need to stay on this mountain. You don't need to stay in the transfiguration. You actually just need to listen to him and you'll be fine. This is not God being calloused. This is God knowing our frame and knowing actually what we need to thrive in this life. The Israelites get to experience manna from heaven. They get to see miracles when they're walking through the wilderness. But not every single day do they get to see a brand new miracle at the caliber of the parting of the Red Sea or water coming out of the rock. In fact, sometimes they just have to do the regular humdrum thing of taking manna and collecting it and being faithful. But the Israelites are still expected to maintain fidelity to God in those times. They're still expected to go along believing that God is actually a miracle-working God, that the Exodus is existing in the background of their mind, but they can't live in the Exodus every day. In fact, sometimes they just have to go forward in faithfulness. They've got to plod along in their life of obedience to God. And God knows that we crave or sometimes idolatrously lust after experience. Not, ex- not that experience is a bad thing, but if we put it in an undue place, a place where we expect it to be a, a sustenance for us for our daily walk, 
then we, we make the mistake that Peter makes here where he says, this needs to go on and on and on. Let's set up tents. Let's set up shop. Let's not go on with ministry. Let's just stay right here. Uh, but Peter uh, doesn't know and he, he needs a rebuke from the cloud. The voice says, you got to listen to Jesus. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And listening to Jesus, we've talked about this before, listening to Jesus, listening to his words, is connected to uh, falling under the authority of Jesus. His, his words carry his authority. His words carry his teaching. And so to listen to Jesus does not mean, uh, let's say in today's context, it doesn't mean that we need Jesus to show up to us in the flesh and speak to us personally in order for us to say, okay, I'm going to listen to that. By God's grace, we actually have much of his teaching recorded for us in the pages of Scripture. And we have this as an encouragement and a sustenance, something we can read, something we can study, something we can live by. This is his word. We, we ought to listen to it. This is not the word of some mere man and, and people who muse together theologically and came up with a system of doctrine. This is the word of Jesus. That's what we confess as Christians when we say that the scripture is the word of God. It's breathed out by God. In fact, if I were to, let's say, cross-reference, there's a bunch of places we could look. We could possibly turn to John chapter 1, verse 14, where he says, The word became flesh, it dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. John, remember, was on the mountaintop here with Jesus. He said, we saw the glory, the glory as of the only Son of the Father. Well, Peter says the same thing. I want you to actually turn there with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. I want you to look at these words with me. Peter reflects on the same experience as John. And he says, he says the following, 2 Peter and, uh, chapter 1, and we'll look at verse 16. He says, We did not follow myths that were cleverly devised, but rather we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty or eyewitnesses of his glory. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him from the majestic glory, this is my son, my beloved, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him in the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you would do well to pay attention. Peter connects the, the mountaintop experience that he has, the glory that he enjoys, and he says, verse 19, this is, this is great. We saw it, we heard the voice, we experienced his glory, we saw his majesty. But now, verse 19, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. The mountaintop experience is great. Peter's saying there's actually something more fully confirmed in the current moment. And Peter will go on to say that it's scripture. It's scripture breathed out by God, which is not something men dreamt up. It's something that God breathed forth by his spirit to encourage his church. And Peter says that, the scripture, which he's about to talk about after verse 19, is something that is more fully confirmed than the mountaintop experience. Now think about what it would take to say something like that. You really have to have experienced the mountaintop and then experienced the fruit of scripture to say, well, I'm looking at both and I would rather have this, this more fully confirmed word rather than the experience. Peter learned his lesson. He, he heard the rebuke of the cloud and he listened to the rebuke and he now lives his life by the words that it's not the experience that you need, it's actually it's actually listening to the words and teachings of Jesus, holding fast to that teaching that you've been given. Now, why is this significant? Well, Peter, uh, before the resurrection, actually is kind of riding the experience all the time. So at this moment, the lesson doesn't sink in, but uh, Peter 
when Jesus is betrayed and crucified, Peter rides that experience to its full extent. He abandons Jesus. He runs away. He denies him because he's riding the experience. And when the mountaintop experience is ended and the crucifixion is happening, well, this is bad time to listen to your experience, right? Now, Peter is fleeing and running. He's not so sure what he believes. After the resurrection, he's riding the experience again. He, he's restored by Jesus. But then what happens in the book of Acts? Jesus uh, teaches him. Then Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father. And he leaves Peter behind with the disciples. And what does Peter do? Well, you know, he has the Pentecost sermon, which is wonderful, possibly still him writing his experience. And what happens? Well, several years go by. The church faces persecution. James, who's with them on the mountain, is, is killed. What happens to Peter? He doesn't abandon faith. He actually keeps teaching. He keeps instructing. They keep sending disciples. They keep preaching the gospel. They keep teaching and praying and laboring over the word. And Peter continues on that trajectory up until the time that he's crucified upside down. And at that point in time, you know he's not writing his experience because if he was, when he's being threatened with death, he would have abandoned what he believed. But instead, what's he doing? He's holding on to the word of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, not to his moment-by-moment experience of life on this earth. The mountaintop experience is great. The dazzling experience that they have is wonderful. But it's not the end-all, be-all of the encouragement that he needs to hold a fast. It's not the ultimate thing that you need as a disciple. And I think that's something we can greatly learn from today because if, if you're like me at all, sometimes we, we get in the mindset that, you know, we live as Christians here on this earth faithfully, but, you know, wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be nice to have been there, to have seen the resurrection? Maybe my faith would be stronger. Maybe my faith would be more robust. Maybe I would be less prone to doubt and to shame and to fear. Well, what we see from the testimony of the disciples is that's not actually the case. Because the experience is wonderful, but the experience isn't the ultimate kind of encouragement that we need as Christians. In fact, if, I would submit to you, if God is truly a loving God who gives good gifts, and he knows that we really need experience and not his word, he would be faithful and he would send us angel after angel after angel to regularly teach us his word so that we would not be prone to dropping into pits of despair and moments of weakness. Because he's a loving father, but he actually knows us better than we know ourselves. And he knows that we don't need to rely on experience. We actually need to grow into maturity to rely on his word in a steadfast way. In fact, this is the experience of of many young Christians. We come to faith in God. We believe in him and we we ride this moment. Maybe it's for a week, maybe it's for a couple months. We just, we're on a mountaintop all the time. Everything we read in scripture is fresh. Everything is wonderful. Our Christian community is great. Uh, We want to talk about God. We want to commune with him. We want to pray. And then there's this tapering off point. And the experience is kind of coming to a close. And then we have to ask the question, is this a real thing that I'm holding on to with genuine faith? Or was I riding the experience? And after the moment of, let's say, doubt, the moment where it's uh, you wake up and you're not so sure you want to get into the word, but you do it anyway. Well, this is a mark, a transition point in a Christian walk where you're actually moving away from the experience and into mature faith. You're moving away from milk and into meat. Because what you're saying is, I don't actually need the experience moment in order to commune with God faithfully. I'm actually going to listen to his word and what it says and go to it even if I don't feel like it. And when we're not dependent on the experience, it doesn't mean we can't enjoy experiences and encouragement when we get them, but we're not uh, dependent on it in order to function. There's a difference between enjoying food for sustenance and being dependent on food because if you don't get the next meal, you're going to die. There's a difference. And as a Christian, we want to be the kind of Christians who can go maybe long periods of time, as the psalmists do, without encouragement, without uh, rejoicing in God, 
but nevertheless faithfully going to him day after day after day, laboring over his word and in prayer. Those are mature believers who do that kind of thing. This is what the voice is, is telling Peter. You don't need the experience. You don't need to prolong it. You actually just need to listen to the teaching of Jesus because this is my son, my chosen one. He teaches my words. This is what the voice says literally in response to Peter. Right? Verse 33 is as they're departing, Peter wants to prolong the experience. Verse 34, as these things are being said is when the cloud responds and says, you don't need to prolong it. You need to hold fast to my word. And then what happens in verse 36? The experience is over. The cloud disappears after the voice had spoken. There's no more Moses. There's no more Elijah. There's just Jesus. And they, notice what the text says. They didn't tell a soul. Why is that? You know, if they're, they're riding the experience, this is a time where they're probably going to want to tell everyone and everyone what they've seen. Unless this moment impacted them a little more deeply than they're able to process in that moment. You have something similar with Mary. Uh, right after uh, the shepherds come to worship Jesus after he's been born, what happens? Uh, Mary doesn't go telling people about all this she's seen. It says she stores these things up in her heart. She hides them in her heart. Why? Well, maybe because she, she's saving them for the future, but possibly she's not quite sure with what to do with all this information, right? In a matter of nine months, she's been told she's going to bear the Son of God. She's going to give birth to him by supernatural means of conception, a virgin birth. And then after the virgin birth and Joseph staying with her faithfully, she's experienced all this joy and all this encouragement. And now shepherds come and worship her baby boy. And she's probably not so sure how to put all that information together in that moment. We've had moments like this where we have so much experience, it's almost like a sensory overload. So we don't say anything, we're just, we need time to process and to think through these things. That's what happens in Mary's case. That's what probably is happening here. The disciples don't know what to say. They keep silent on these things. Jesus didn't even need to tell them not to say anything. They're processing silently. They, they kept silent and they don't tell a soul what they had seen in those days. They don't tell anyone. Well, what is, what is the text communicating to us, let's say, at that moment. The experience comes to a close. Now they need time to process. Uh, for Christians, this uh, time of processing, this, this moment of mutual uh, uh, processing that we need, this is not something that we should despise. Sometimes it is the case where we experience the joy of God. Let's say we experience hardship and suffering. And if we move too quickly over that, we move straight from the experience, straight into processing it out loud and, and in community. And uh, sometimes that short changes our need to actually get the thing inside of us, figure out exactly how to process it with God before we're actually able to go back out to, let's say, testify about it. Sometimes it's a, a suffering experience that we need time to process and to soothe our hearts before we can go back out and to, to talk to people about exactly what has happened. Sometimes it's an experience that's a, a wonderful, joyous experience. Maybe it's the discovery of loving theology. Maybe it's the discovery of, of loving God's word so much. And we need time to process all the riches that we're seeing before we can go and just start sharing that with everyone. And that time of processing is not undue. In fact, the disciples have many moments like this where they're not so sure what Jesus is saying. They need to internalize it first for a while before they're going to be able to share this with anyone in a substantive way. And that's not a, a bad part of being a disciple. Sometimes we learn things so wonderful that we just need it to sit and to percolate for a while before we're able to get this out in a coherent way. But that time is, is wonderful. It, that's not wasted time. That's time where we're processing all the riches and joy that we've experienced. You can imagine uh, Peter, James, and John, let's say, carrying this secret for a period of time. They carry it uh, likely until after the crucifixion. 
and likely until after the resurrection. And then they're saying, you know what, probably time to process this out loud about this experience. Because the text never tells us that they inform the other disciples. In fact, the text never tells us when they bring this experience to light. All that we know is sometime between them having this experience and the gospel of Luke, Matthew, and Mark being recorded, that this experience gets out to the public and people hear more about the transfiguration. But there's a long span of time where we're not so sure exactly when they take their experience and they share it with anyone else. And that's okay. <laughs> the text is telling us, remember, the experience is not the point. The point is not having been on the mountaintop in order to be a faithful disciple. The point is not that. The point is, listen to the words of Jesus. That's, that's the thrust of what the text is saying. In essence, the dazzling experience of the mountaintop is wonderful, but it's not the bread and butter of discipleship. The bread and butter of discipleship is listening to the Son, the chosen one of God, and holding fast to his words. That's the, the meat and potatoes of what it means to be a disciple. And I think that's an encouragement because if we're honest, you know, we're living in a day and age where uh, in the New Testament, it seems like there's always an angel, there's always a demon, there's always a miracle happening. You know, we don't live in an age like that. We don't live in an age where we have apostles and prophets running around and giving new, fresh revelation from God. We do have people who claim that that's happening, but those people are not saying things in accord with Scripture. What, what we do have, though, is we have the Word of God recorded faithfully to us, passed down faithfully for thousands of years, and it's a word that we're actually still encouraged to hold fast to. Hold fast to the end. Uh, maintain faithfulness to the Word of God. Uh, we know how to live. We know how to, to walk. We know how to live wisely in the world because it's been recorded for us in His Word. And as Peter says, and if we take his word seriously, he says this is a better, a more full revelation, a more full confirmation of all of the things that have taken place. So I think we can, we can take heart from that because we live in an age that's more marked by needing to listen to the Word faithfully than marked by the moment-to-moment -moment experience riding. I want to warn you, if, if riding the experiences is something that you're used to in your life as a Christian, this is something that I want to encourage you to quickly move away from. Not because the experiences are bad. Remember, the experience is wonderful. The fact that they're there is great. The, the problem with the riding of experiences is it makes us a little bit dependent on the experience for sustenance. It makes us a little too dependent on the experience to the point where if we don't have it, and we face discouragement or trial or combating someone uh, challenging our faith, and we don't have the experience to carry us through, well, we are dead in the water. We are, we are lost. Um, we need something more than that. We need not the moment-to-moment -moment highs that we can experience as Christians, but rather we need the steadfast word faithfully handed to us. And, and we live in an age where we're so blessed that it's printed in many different translations in many different languages, and we can buy 20 copies if we want to to keep in our house and to study if we want. We live in an age where we are blessed with the abundance of God's word, and we should not despise that. This is something that God has given to us as an encouragement and as a blessing. Now, there's one last thing in the text I'd like to uh, pay attention to or draw your eye to, and that is uh, connecting this, uh, this verse, verse 35, and the proclamation of the voice from the cloud, and looking back in Luke's gospel where that has happened beforehand. Remember earlier in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 3, verse 22, after Jesus is baptized, the voice comes out of heaven and says, this is my beloved son. No, it says, you are my beloved son. In the text here, it says, this is my beloved son. Now, the reason I want to point that out is because there is a difference in who's being addressed, right? In the first instance, and you can look there, Luke chapter 3, verse 22, the voice from heaven is speaking to Jesus. It says, you, to Jesus, you are my beloved son. Jesus has been baptized. He's faced the temptation, or he's about to face the temptation. He, he's the one getting the encouragement. Jesus is the one receiving the affirmation. You are my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. 
in this instance, in the transfiguration, this is not addressed to Jesus. The voice is speaking to the disciples who are with him. The voice is not saying, you are my beloved son. The voice says, this is my beloved son. He's referring to Jesus, but Jesus is not the one receiving the encouragement in this moment. Who's receiving the encouragement? It's Peter, James, and John. They're the ones who need to know that this is the son of God. The voice says, this is my son, which means this central claim of the voice is answering the question that has been kind of being begged for several chapters now in Luke's gospel. Who is this? Who is this? Who is this? Who then do you say that I am? Well, we think you are the Christ. And now the voice gives, let's say, the definitive answer of who this is. This is my beloved son. The, the answer has been given. And now we can check our work and respond to what the voice has said. Is our response in line with this response? As disciples, this is the answer. This is the only correct answer. He is the Son of God. He is in full likeness with God, as John says in John chapter 1. And he is uh, so unique that he can't be put on the same playing field as Moses and as Elijah. This is the Son of God. This is my unique, only begotten Son. That's quite a statement. But it's a statement that doesn't come from any of the disciples. So we, we're not left to wonder, is this the right answer from a disciple? The statement comes from the cloud, which speaks with a voice, and the voice is attributed to God the Father. This cloud speaks the answer that, let's say, we were, if we were wondering and we were unsure if Peter's proclamation was correct, or if Jesus has a good self-assessment on who he is, well, the cloud is going to answer for us and speak definitively about who he is. And this is an answer that we're going to need to, as we're reading Luke's gospel, hang on to. Because after this moment, we're going to see that the disciples actually have several points of misunderstanding. And the Pharisees have several points of misunderstanding. And there's much hard teaching that needs to be learned about who the Messiah is, how he's to suffer, all these hard teachings. And this, let's say, stands as a, a monument or a pillar or a reminder of what we are to remember about Jesus. Right? Luke has been building the case about who he is. Now he's landed the plane on who he is. And now he's going to turn his attention to, if this is true, if he is the Messiah, what is his kingdom like? What is his messiahship like? What is the kingdom of heaven really going to be like? That's where he's going to turn his attention from this point forward. And so we can't move too quickly beyond this text without reminding or searing this into our brain. The right answer to the question, who is this, is that this is the Son of God. Now that takes place in the mountaintop experience, but this is the truth that the disciples need to remember after the experience is over. It's not just information that needs to be conveyed. It's a truth that needs to be held and held close to their hearts. Because it's not enough for us to, at one point in time, have said, I was on board with that idea. And then in the hard times or in the difficulties, say, well, I'm not so sure about it at this point. The disciple, remember, we're told in uh, 23, is the one who's going to face suffering like their Messiah. And they're the one who needs to remember and hang on to the idea that he is, in fact, the Christ. We need to hold on to that even if our experience doesn't line up with it, even if the other teachers around us reject that claim, even if everyone and everyone rejects that Jesus is the Christ, this is the right answer that we need to hold on to. And we can't be dependent on experience to hold on to that claim. We can't be dependent on a group of other Christians around us to encourage us in that claim. That's a wonderful blessing from God, and if that's the case, that's the case. But sometimes we find ourselves standing alone. It's us and our belief about God. It's us and our assured testimony about Christ, and we have family and friends and co-workers and people who despise us because of this claim, and at that moment, we have to decide or we have to resolve, is this something we actually are hanging on to, this claim about who Jesus is? 
And that is quite a question to wrestle with. That's the question that I think we all wrestle with uh, when we leave here, when we leave church, when we leave worship and we go back into our workplaces and to our housing situations and wherever we go after this place. We're likely not always in an environment where we have mutual testimony and encouragement from other believers. But that's okay as long as we're not dependent on the experience. As long as we can hold fast to the word beyond the experience and beyond the encouragement that we receive, we can hold that even in the the Wednesdays of the week and even in the Fridays when it's been a long time since we've had encouragement in the word. But one of the blessings that we also have as Christians is we're not only dependent on truth, we're also given the regular blessing of experience by the means of the gathering of the saints and worship. But more than that is the, the partaking in the Lord's Supper, which is something we do every week here at church. This is something that is a regular experience that Christians partake in, not as some routine or habit that we do. This is something we partake in to experience once again all that Jesus has done for us. He broke his body on our behalf. He shed his blood to atone for our sins. And we weekly remind ourselves of that truth in the partaking of communion by the breaking of bread and the taking of wine. So even though experience is not something we're dependent on, God is gracious and he does give us experiences that we can be regularly reminded of, of his truth. And so even though we don't need the experience, we can regularly receive the encouragement from the experience when he delights to give it to us. And we should not despise those experiences, but rather we should reflect and rejoice and uh, take in all of the joy of what is offered in those days. So I would invite you to close with me in a word of prayer and then we will take communion together. Father, I want to thank you for this time. Lord, I want to thank you for all that you have blessed us with in your word and the encouragement that we receive from it. Would you help us, God, uh, to be a people who, who love you, who love your word, and who can hold fast to it despite what surrounds us and what we are uh, regularly experiencing on a day-to-day basis. We know that our weekly experiences may vary. Sometimes we have the greatest of joy in you, and sometimes we have the lowest of lows. And we know that if that is all we're hanging on to, Lord, we won't last very long. So be gracious to us and help us to move beyond that point. Move to a place of maturity, a place of uh, sustenance, a place of stability where we can actually delight in you uh, in sickness and in health. We can delight in you uh, when the days are great and when the days are very dim. We can delight in you in the joy and in the suffering. And we could do that as saints who are well-seasoned and well, well prepared to handle those moments. Lord, would you be gracious to us in all things as we walk this thing out? And would you send us your spirit to encourage us and to strengthen us and uh, in all things to hold us fast. We pray this in your name. Amen.